Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. It's the time of year for gathering together family and friends to celebrate all that's been and all that will be. An important element to all those spirited celebrations are the spirits themselves. We're diving deeply into the topic of cocktail culture and how to best prepare for all the imbibing. We'll begin with one of New Orleans' premier bartenders and bar owners, T. Cole Newton. His provocative book, Cocktail Dive Bar, not only shares recipes from his famed mid-city hangout, 12 Mile Limit, but also imparts lots of thoughtful wisdom Cole has garnered along the way. Then we learn the whole story behind one of New Orleans' most charming after-dinner traditions, Café Brulot, from first-time author Sue Strachan. And how many bottles does it take to make a bar? We'll get great advice about how you can do it at home with just 12 bottles from authors Leslie Jacob Solomonson and David Solomonson. We're getting into the holiday spirit with Holiday Spirits on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, this is T. Cole Newton. I am the author of Cocktail Dive Bar, Real Drinks, Fake History, and Questionable Advice for New Orleans' 12-Mile Limit. I am also the owner of the bar's 12-Mile Limit and the Domino. T. Cole Newton, or Cole as he goes by, is not a native New Orleanian, but his presence in the city has been felt for over a decade. After a stint working as a bartender at Commander's Palace and bar manager at Coquette, in 2010, Cole opened 12 Mile Limit, a dive bar offering fine cocktails on a residential corner in Mid-City. In 2019, he added his casual wine bar, the Domino in the Bywater. Cole's book, Cocktail Dive Bar, is a lot of things. For one, it documents every one of 12 Mile's original cocktail recipes and brings them to life. It's also part comic book, part coloring book, and part memoir that touches on Cole's personal relationship with alcohol. But perhaps the most fascinating part of the book are Cole's essays that tackle topics like alcohol abuse, sexual harassment, and gentrification with instructions for people who might, like Cole, want to have their own bar. Yeah, I really wanted to share some of the ethical and emotional landscape of bar ownership because it can be a real minefield just trying to figure out what the right thing to do in any given situation is, how to approach a guest who's too inebriated 
to continue to serve, how to navigate the sexual violence, gentrification. There are a lot of heady issues that come up in bar ownership, particularly in the in bar ownership in a neighborhood that is going through the demographic changes that that mine is. Let's go back to this corner of Bowden and Telemachus. You moved 12-mile limit in there how many years ago? Almost 11 now. You did save that building for a very important use because those corner neighborhood bars just got demolished. Yeah, I, I legitimately think that you're right. I think that any any reasonable person who purchased that property at that time would have done a sober evaluation of its um, needs and would have torn it down and built probably a house or two. And you know, people need homes. But I really think, and we've talked about this before, that that the neighborhood bar is a, is a diminishing institution, and that's a really sad thing. And that building would not be a bar today if I hadn't bought it. I, I guarantee you that. I think you're 100% right. But I also recognize that me being the rich white man that I am, got to own all of those identities and recognize that the privileges that they convey, um, me being those things attracted people who more or less looked like me to this space that had previously been um, patronized by primarily black people, by people of color. And that changed the neighborhood. And recognizing that the bar has, if nothing else, accelerated that process in the little pocket of mid-city that it occupies. I am complicit in those systems that I don't that I feel bad about. And while to a degree they're intractable, I do have power. I do have agency. I do have a voice that can be used to shape policy that can help prevent gentrification from being as painful, from being as inevitable as it sometimes feels. When did you realize, did, when you bought the property, were you thinking, oh, I'm kind of feeling like a gentrifying white bar owner here? Did you, or did it dawn on you, look what's happening? I think I would be, I would, I'd be lying if I pretended that I wasn't aware of what my being in that neighborhood would mean for the neighborhood. I think I, a part of me always knew that. And I think part of me always tried to do it right. I tried to hire people from the neighborhood for positions for which they were qualified, which at the time was like, there weren't a lot of, you know, fancy cocktail bartenders in that little pocket of mid-city. So I, but I hired people for the kitchen. I hired people for uh, maintenance and, and, and uh, janitorial work. But ultimately that too is, it can be very uh, self-perpetuating, that those are not very visible positions. So when a guest would come into the bar, they wouldn't know that, that, a significant portion of our staff uh, was hired from that neighborhood because the person that they would see is the bartender, and the bartenders, more often than not, racially at least, looked like me. It was really inspiring and empowering to me all of the time that you spent on a topic that nobody ever touches, rape prevention, and along with that, 86-ing drunk customers. Yeah. I mean, the the sexual violence prevention in bars is something that's very important to me because I recognize that alcohol is the number one date rape drug. People use it for all of the reasons that you would use a pharmaceutical, like drop a pill in someone's drink. Alcohol does all of those things. It impedes our ability to form memories. It, it messes with our judgment. It messes with our motor function. It induces drowsiness. These are all of the things that people look for in a date rape drug. 
And in addition to all of those, it's socially acceptable and widely available. And so you can get it anywhere. And on top of that, people ply that at bars. I, uh, this, was, this is not uh, a scientific analysis, but I have a friend who works at the, the Tulane University Health Center. I mentioned this in the, uh, the essay about sexual violence prevention in bars. And it's a, uh, that, that m- the vast majority of the people who report having been raped have been drinking socially with their rapist the night of their attack. It seemed so incredibly smart to me that you included in the notices that you put in your restroom the phone number to the bar. That was really smart. I've never was, seen uh, that before. I'd never seen that before either. A lot, of, a lot of the ones that I've seen when I was doing research on this and trying to figure out what our messaging would be, and it evolved over time. And so this was the, the recommendation of our staff at the time was to put the phone number at the bar. So if you're, if you're stuck in the bathroom, you've locked yourself in. And the ba- bathrooms really can be that space, like where that respite where you can just get away and be alone in that public space for a little while. To being able to communicate with the bar staff directly from that location felt like kind of a breakthrough. When the customer becomes drunk, um, the customer may get 86 How do you navigate this in such a way that a customer may even want to return if you want them to return? I think the the last essay in the book is about that, is about how to navigate 86ing a guest, how to, how to kick somebody out of your bar in a way that Ultimately, the goal for me, the measure of success that I have for myself in, this, uh, in these interactions is if they thank me at the end of the <laughs> like Once they're outside and we're like having that different conversation about making sure they can get home safely, but they're outside of the bar. Not, they know they're not going to get served anymore. They know they're not uh, going to be allowed back in that evening. Be like, okay, well, you can come back tomorrow. Uh, and if they say, okay, thanks, uh, then, then I feel like I've done my job. But I think underlining that, those interactions, all of these other interactions is recognizing that at people's best and at people's worst, that we all are deserving of respect and to be treated as a person. So just just because you've gotten drunk at my bar does not mean that you should be ridiculed or that people should take the opportunity to um, – that we're, we're cutting you off and so we're going to treat you – like you've made a foolish choice. Like, no, you, you had a drink at my bar. Thank you. I, I, my lifestyle depends on you making that choice time and again. Um, so, but recognizing that we've all been there, we all sort of are in this journey together, that, that, that continuing to demonstrate respect and compassion for people who don't necessarily merit it in that moment, but recognizing that they're not, they're not firing on all cylinders. And we've all been there. Like, I'm, I'm not anyone to judge someone for making poor choices while drinking. Lord knows I've made enough of my own. Let's talk about your personal relationship with alcohol, because it certainly has changed and evolved over your lifetime, hasn't it? It has. I, um, I was, I would describe myself as a problematically heavy drinker from, pro- from about the age of 15 to about the age of 30. That was when I started really reevaluating my personal relationship with alcohol. But this was after a decade and a half of every every significant relationship I had. The the my partner would say, "Hey, I think you might have a drinking problem," and I would brush it off. It's like, "Oh, it was you know, it was the Fourth of July. What do you want?" It was like, "Oh, it was a wedding." What those kind of rationalizations that people have. 
Um, but I went through cycles, and it was pretty predictable, ultimately. It was about every six months I would do something stupid, not not dissimilar than, than going to the saint and getting blackout drunk and passing out on the sidewalk. That was hardly a unique example. Um, if I would do something stupid, I would quit drinking for a week, a month, some, some specific period of time. Uh, then I would start drinking very carefully. And then I would slowly start to feel invincible again. And I would start drinking much more liberally. And then I would do something stupid again. And it was about a six-month cycle that repeated very continuously for about for most of that 15 years. And eventually I realized that I was not – I was approaching the problem from the wrong angle. That I, I couldn't really – like I was – I'd gotten lucky so many times. Um, yeah, with, ending up in the hospital with mm, alcohol I, poisoning I, that was that is night. like a super That's, shocking sort of wake-up call. It was, fortunately. I think a lot of people, ha- that might happen to a number of people, and they think, oh, that was weird, you know, <laughs> and then just go on with their lives and chalk it up to an anomaly and instead of recognizing it as, as part of a pattern of behavior that was only likely to escalate. How did you change this? It was... Uh, and I talk about this later in the book, um, in the in the afterward, actually. So it, it sort of bookends because the early chapters talk about my dawning realization that I have a drinking problem, for lack of a better term. And then another night, which also involved uh, drinking at the Saint, uh, a font of, of interesting decision making, if ever there was in the city, um, that I wound up asleep on the sidewalk again. And it was... Uh, it was one of those times where I, I just it was it was it was enough. It was enough to realize that while I'm, I'm glad that I never got to a point where I was physically dependent on alcohol. It, it alcohol is a hell of a drug. The, the if you go cold, if you're physically dependent on alcohol, if you're that level of alcoholic and you quit cold turkey, it can be it can be lethal. But I think that was the dawn. The, this, the, the second time is not even accurate that I f- fell asleep on the sidewalk while trying to get home in a blackout state. That, that happened probably half a dozen times in my life. And that one was the one. Uh, it was because, it was because my, again, my fiance at the time, now wife, found me um, in that state. After hours after she stopped being able to get in touch with me on the phone, she decided to go out and actively look for me and found me asleep on the sidewalk and saw my body and thought I was dead. And that was like seeing her go through that. And I think a lot of people also, and for better or for worse, you have to come to a point where you realize that your actions have consequences not only for yourself but for other people. And I think that that I maybe I, just, I didn't value my own health and safety or I thought I was invincible. But seeing seeing how that behavior affected the people that I loved and cared about um, – was really more dramatic for me than just the consequences. Like the, waking up in the hospital wasn't what did it. It was it was knowing that my wife to be thought I was dead, like and like had every reason to. It wasn't even an irrational feeling. Uh, that that really set the fire. Well, it's clear from this conversation that you have learned many lessons along the road of life and. All of these things are in the book, but it's also a cocktail recipe book. And I was thrilled to see in print and have access to making at home a Bowden, a great idea, which also happens to be one of my favorite 12 mile limit drinks. Bravo. Great book. Thank you. The, ultimately, it became more 
of a Trojan horse. Like, I recognize that there's an acceptable format for a bar owner to reach this audience as a published author, and the acceptable format for that is a cocktail book. And that's what people know me for. I'm a mixologist. I make drink recipes. Here are my drink recipes. Now that you're here, we can have these other conversations. But it's, you got to do that first part right. You got to the, the recipes have to be good. They have to be well considered. They have to be thoughtful. They have to be creative and diverse. And I think we've done a good job of representing the 12 mile limit cocktail program in its idiosyncrasies but using that to draw people into these deeper conversations. That was T. Cole Newton, owner of Cocktail Bar, 12 Mile Limit, and Wine Bar, The Domino. Coming up next, we speak with author Sue Strachan, whose new book examines an iconic Crescent City cocktail, the Café Brulot. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. This is Sue Strachan. I'm the author of The Café Brulot. With over 25 years in editing, writing, and public relations, Sue Strachan can now add author to her long list of accomplishments. Her new book, The Café Brulot, examines the popular incendiary after-dinner drink served only in some of New Orleans' finer restaurants. We sat down with Sue to discuss Café Brulot, its history, and how it's made. So LSU Press approached me about doing uh, one of the cocktails in its cocktail series, and they gave me a list, and Café Brulot jumped out at me for reasons that if anyone has uh, ever sampled it or seen it be made before, it's, it's theatrical. It smells great. It smells of Christmas. It smells like cloves. It smells of, you know, it's fun, celebration. It's a great way to end a meal at some of the old line restaurants in New Orleans. You have a translation of Café Brulot. For people who don't know what that means, how does that translate? It's incendiary coffee, and it is only incendiary if you add alcohol to it. 
So um, there were some rumors of its origins that I've seen in some of my research that it was invented during Prohibition, which didn't, to me, made no sense because you need the alcohol to light it on fire. And not only that, but it was being served in New Orleans for way too long before Prohibition. So who knows who starts and tells that lore? And it keeps on going on and on. And so uh, I'm glad to be able to correct the record. I think that you and I can definitely agree that the popularity of this drink, if not the drink itself, can pretty much center back to Antoine mm-hmm. Alciator and his son Jules. Yes. Jules was the uh, marketing mind behind it. Oh, yes, he was. He really was the one. I mean, Cafe Brulo Diablique, you know, added sort of this kind of like fun flair to it. And that's when I think he started designing the cups and the saucers with the devil on the side and then the saucer. And then you have the stands, which had the, the, the stand legs are of this devil as well. And you can see that at Antoine's. All that is Antoine's. When Jules was alive, you know, it was Belle Epoque and it had, they, you know, you would see a lot of advertisements of that kind of devilish persona. And I think it sort of went along with what was going on at that time. So let's get down to actually what goes into the Café Brulot. Well, you start with a brandy, and then you have cinnamon, lemons, and oranges, and sugar, cloves, coffee, and an orange liqueur. Or a Kirschwasser. Kirschwasser? Yes, Kirschwasser. Where did you find the Kirschwasser reference? Well, the interesting, the first time I did was when I was doing research, and I was looking at videos, and Cocktail Kingdom... Uh, Dale DeGroff was making it, and he added some Kirschwasser to it. And then I asked Lisa Blunt, who's one of the co-owners of Antoine's, I'm like, could it be possible that they use Kirschwasser? And she thought about it, and she said, yes. So I said, let's do it. Let's try it. And, uh, you know, Charles Carter, who's an amazing, um, I think, third-generation waiter at Antoine's, did the taste test for me. And Kirschwasser, which is a cherry liqueur, added a really lovely, smooth flavor to it, and I actually prefer it to having the orange liqueur in it. It's so wonderful that in our historical restaurants, this is still such a celebratory tradition. Where can people find Café Brulot these days? Well, in the French Quarter, you can find it at Antoine's, Arnaud's, Broussard's, and Galatois. Uptown, you can find it at Commander's Palace. And what are the differences that you find from place to place? Some use cognac instead of brandy. Some use dark French dark roast coffee. Uh, Arnaud's likes to use coffee and chicory. And then Arnaud's also does a really special presentation in which they take an orange and they peel it so it's a spiral. And, you know, the end is still attached to the orange. And then they stud it with the cloves. And so when the, the mixture is lit, in the, the, whoever's making it takes a big old fork, you know, like a barbecue fork, puts it in there, puts it above the bowl. And then they take the flaming mixture of the ladle and pour it down the orange peel. And the and orange the cloves, cloves, they spark like fireworks. It's so exciting. It's really great to see that and everything kind of, it adds a little extra pop to the whole, you know, to presentation. Well, It's a beautiful, perfect little book for any New Orleans lover, any cocktail lover, and anybody who just enjoys some good Café Brulot. 
Sue, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Sue Strachan, author of The Café Brulot. Katz believes that a shot of history in every glass makes for a better cocktail. In addition to being one of the leading experts on cocktails and spirits in the U.S., Allen is co-founder of one of the country's premier craft distilleries, New York Distilling Company. Based in Brooklyn, the company opened on December 5, 2011, the anniversary of the repeal of Prohibition. Their first two products became signature spirits, a Navy-strength gin named Perry's Tot and an American gin called Dorothy Parker. When we spoke with Alan in 2014, he gave us a glimpse into the craft distilling scene and how it's taking a cue from America's pre-prohibition cocktail heritage. Alan, I'd like to know how you decided to open your own distillery. Well, it's actually a fairly good story, I think. Uh, I was interested in the broader spectrum of food and drink. And I had a wonderful opportunity many years ago to go and live and work in Italy in a food sense. I was working at a cooking school, and I had never been in such close proximity to the food that we were actually using in the kitchen. I really didn't travel extensively on that trip, but it absolutely piqued my curiosity as to what might be an authentic American gastronomy. And over the years, I had many occasions to contemplate that question, and I could really only come up with two genuine answers, one being barbecue of the American South and the other being cocktails. And I went off on the deep end of cocktails. And I had bartended a little bit, and I had worked in restaurants, but not with a a penchant curiosity or a focus on why are we selecting this rum above all others for our house daiquiri, or what is the rationale for the ratio in a specific recipe. And ultimately, in a desire to, one, work for myself, and two, actually be a manufacturer of of something, uh, it, it led me to an interest in distilling. So you begin the New York Distilling Company, and the first products you begin working with are gin. Why gin? We started with gin for two reasons. One, if you go back to the first golden age of American cocktail culture, it's really the 1850s, 60s, up until Prohibition, the mainstay white spirit was gin. And so one on one hand, we like celebrating that. We like bringing some new ideas to gin and some old ones uh, that really haven't been thought about for some time. Uh, but the other is very honestly a business decision where almost from the moment we started, we began distilling and barreling rye whiskey. But we wanted to age it for a reasonable amount of time. So... You know, from a revenue standpoint, you've got to have some streams of revenue to keep the doors open. We're able to make gin and essentially have it in a bottle in a matter of several weeks as opposed to several years. So that was a very smart economic decision. And you combine history 
with gin in a very interesting way. And so I'd like you to tell us about Perry's Tot Navy Strength Gin first. Sure. Well, this was really the, the first example and the prime example of us trying to create a product that was purposefully different. And prior to releasing Perry's Tot, there had not been a Navy Strength Gin commercially available in the United States for nearly a century. And most people hadn't heard of it, bartenders included. And the fun story, factual story, is that Navy Strength Gin, and rum for that matter, were created by the British in design that if by accident or otherwise you spilled your booze on board ship, you could still fire off your cannons. And people say, why does that matter? Well, the officers were paid with alcohol. And in the old days, and I mean the very old days, the 1700s, etc., you had a lot of casks of alcohol on board ship. And if you got caught with your gunpowder rendered useless, you ended up at the bottom of the Atlantic or the bottom of the English Channel. And so they devised that a higher-proof spirit would prevent this from happening. For us, the more important fact that in research, going back 100 years to the turn of the 1900s, Navy strength gin was wildly popular in cities along the East Coast, from New York to New Orleans to St. Louis and San Francisco, from the standpoint of usage in cocktails. And so we thought if we could devise a recipe, and again, this is at 114 proof, or 57% alcohol, that if we could devise a recipe that resulted in a reasonably smooth gin, that we could then sort of garner interest in presenting it as a cocktail ingredient. What is the difference between Navy strength and regular strength gin? Well, that's also the fun thing about gin, is there's no code or regulation that says gin must be 80 proof or 85 or not, whatever the case may be. You really have, after the usage of juniper berries, virtually a blank canvas to be creative with. And you want to sometimes rein in that feeling of creativity because it can get you in trouble in too many directions as well. Uh, so there's no normal strength, but 114 is as high a proof as you will find for a gin on this planet. And so our other gins, while not going all the way down to 80 proof, are slightly lower in strength. Now, I'd like to move on to your other gin. All right. The bottom line is, uh, for me personally, I wanted to name a product for a woman and could think of no better woman to name a product for. Particularly a gin. Particularly a gin, and that's Dorothy Parker. She was, as I imagine her, far more of a broad uh, than a lady, <laughs> yeah. and that's just fine by me, but she was a damn good drinker, and I think that was, for us, without being flippant about it, worth celebrating too. This is a more contemporary-style gin. Both of our gins are heavy with juniper as a backbone of, of the distilled spirit. Uh, and then they have some spices like coriander and a little bit of cinnamon or uh, star anise or green cardamom pods, depending on which gin. Uh, and we balance that out with a little bit of citrus, always, of course. Uh, but in the case of the Dorothy Parker gin, we have what we would call uh, two contemporary botanicals. One is elderberry, and the other is dried hibiscus petals. And on the nose and palate, if you just taste it neat, it gives it a floral or fruit-forward quality. The key for us, 
coming from a, a cocktail background is its versatility in making mixed drinks with it. That's all that matters. And that when you make any manner of gin sour or the equally popular bitter-esque style of cocktail like a Negroni, that in both cases that fruit or floral quality just recesses to the background and makes for a very well-balanced cocktail. I wished on the moon for something I never knew. That was Alan Katz of the New York Distilling Company speaking with us in 2014. Next time you're at a bar, I recommend ordering a Negroni made with Dorothy Parker gin. It's the next best thing to having a cocktail with Dorothy Parker herself. I begged of a star to throw me a beam or two. What makes a martini a perfect martini? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I wished on the moon Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Let's all Louisiana. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. This fall includes many outdoor festivals, the weekend beats and eats, and upcoming holiday events. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What makes a martini a perfect martini? A perfect martini contains one ounce of dry vermouth and four ounces of gin. Begin by chilling your martini glass with ice and water so that it'll be very cold. Then, fill a metal cocktail shaker with cracked ice, stir briefly, and then discard the vermouth. Add the four ounces of gin, and then... Controversy number one. Do you shake it? Or do you stir it? A martini, shaken, not stirred. Won't you join me? Sorry, James Bond. Most martini connoisseurs believe that if you shake that precious elixir, you'll bruise it and ruin the ultimate drink. So please, let's not upset those folks. Stir that gin over the vermouth-flavored ice, then empty the ice and water from the martini glass and strain in the icy-cold elixir that's known as a martini. 
garnish with a couple of olives and drink immediately. A martini with a pickled cocktail onion is known as a Gibson, but for a distinctly southern twist, add a pickled okra. Now, I am with James Bond when it comes to my martinis, as I like them made with vodka. And please, no vermouth for me. I'm really a bit of a martini heretic, as I prefer my vodka martinis slightly dirty. A dirty martini has some olive juice in it to spice things up a bit. But one thing's for sure, a martini will certainly spice up any party. After all, one of the most famous martini drinkers who ever lived was Dorothy Parker, who once wrote, One martini, two at the most, three I'm under the table, four I'm under the host. Dorothy! I'm Poppy Tooker, and I'm the host of Louisiana Eats, that is. I'm David Scott Salmonson. I'm the co-author of 12 Bottle Bar, which I wrote with my lovely wife here. And I'm the lovely wife, Leslie Jacob Salmonson. I wrote the book 12 Bottle Bar with my lovely husband. Leslie Jacob Salmonson is a senior editor at Chilled Magazine and author of a book that chronicles the history of gin. David Salmonson is a screenwriter and avid home mixologist. In 2014, the pair published The Twelve Bottle Bar, a book based on an interesting idea. Can you build a complete home bar using just a dozen bottles of spirits? As it turns out, the answer is yes. Leslie and David use this premise to guide readers through hundreds of classic and unique cocktails, from sours and slings to toddies and highballs. Louisiana Eats spoke with the husband and wife authors just after the book's publication. I'm fascinated by your concept, 12 Bottle Bar. So what inspired this book? A a great deal of things. Um, Practicality. Practicality is really the the main element. Um, We have a five-year-old. You know, we're married. We have a five-year-old. We have a budget to think of. We are not always rushing out and having fun at all the, the great cocktail bars these days, but we enjoy drinking and we enjoy experimenting and we enjoy sort of the social nature of cocktails, not only with each other, but with friends. And so we used to try and experiment with drinks and we'd find magazines that had really esoteric ingredients. We call them bottles of creme d'esoterica. Um, <laughs> the, the sort of generic, extremely ridiculous, overly priced, but sometimes quite beautiful bottle. Other times not so great. And you'd use a quarter teaspoon or less and discover you hated the drink, and then have a $70 bottle taking up about three inches of space in your cabinet, and that three inches would grow exponentially. And we finally said, enough. There's got to be a way to do this in a home bar for a price. What we really wanted to look at was the ability to convince people that, you know, you can make these same drinks, or at least similar ones, you know, focus on the the classics, at home for a couple of bucks. And not only that, we're really, there's two things I really want to achieve with this book and sort of with the mission we're on. One is to wipe light beer off the have people over to your house menu. (laughs) If you ride a Harley and you drink light beer, we need to have a talk. (laughs) Because we want to go riding with them, right? Correct. And the other thing is we, we really would like to, with the cocktail renaissance, 
The one thing we haven't really seen so much is the resurgence of the cocktail party. And we'd like to have people go, you know, it's not that difficult to make something like a Tom Collins punch. And you make it in advance of your party. And then your friends come over and they serve themselves. And you do what you're supposed to do, which is be with your friends and not being trying to impress them by, you know, how great you can make a blue blazer. And and one of the messages of the book truly is that cocktails are no mystery. Going to a bar is a very different experience than making drinks at home either for yourself or for your friends. You go to a bar to treat yourself and to indulge, not only in ingredients that can be esoteric or can be something you might not normally try, you're not even sure how to handle it or mix with it, but you're excited and you want to see what a bartender can surprise you with. I think that's the new nature of the cocktail culture and bartenders flourish when you give them that permission. But by the same token, you don't want to take that time to make things at home that, that are that complex. You want to make a well-made drink that you can customize and that has certain elements of, of whimsy, perhaps, or something like that. But being at home and drinking is a very different experience. In some ways, it's more intimate. And it's great for us. I mean, we can make a drink in three minutes in the kitchen, and it's fun. And, you know, oh, God, I squirted lemon in my eye. Oh, here, can you do this? Versus 20 minutes cooking dinner, even. I can cook, you can cook, we can all cook. There's a big difference between saying we can cook and saying we're Grant Ackett's or we're Thomas Keller. And I think that's the difference we see for the home bartender and the professional bartender. Everybody's got a dish they make. We want everybody to have a cocktail that they make. And I think one of the fears that most people have of cocktails is not understanding them. People go to a bar and they don't know what a Tom Collins is and they don't really know what they want to drink, so they order something that they sound intelligent, you know, like I'll have a Grey Goose and soda. And they do it just out of panic and fear, I think, in a lot of cases, or just comfort. And I think if you get people to a point where they're like, you know, I like a whiskey sour, but I like it with rosemary syrup instead of regular simple syrup. And it's easy to make at home. And I can throw that together. That's where we want to help people get to. So you think you might want to give home bartending a try? Where do you begin? Leslie and David explain how 12 Bottle Bar allows readers to acquaint themselves with their liquor cabinet using one bottle at a time. We start with the one bottle bar. One is just pick a spirit you like. And, and quite frankly, I don't care if it's a spirit that's in the book or not, but mix it with some sugar, some citrus. Go to town. Find ways to explore with different citruses, with different sugars, with a little bit of water. You know, make a Tom Collins, make a grog, make things like this that were the foundations of cocktails anyway. And I I tend to like to follow that historic path. How did these things evolve over time? Well, let's evolve our education the same way. And our bar. So if you're a a complete neophyte, this is a way to sort of handhold you and say, drink what you like. You don't have to restrict yourself, um, even if it's not on our list, as David said. And you go with a basic. Then with the three bottle bar, we go to our next cocktail level where you can actually make a true mixed drink. We had the vermouth and bitters at that point, what we call the salt and pepper. Uh, again, food analogies for us. Bitters are more in the spice rack category. But we want to convey to people that things like the way you would add salt to a steak to bring, or to any meal to bring out the flavors. You're not, you're not seasoning something to make it salty. You're not adding bitters to make something bitter per se. You're adding it to enhance the other flavors. So that's our three bottle bar. So your space spirit, pick a bottle of bitters, pick a vermouth that you like, make a Manhattan, make a martini, but just begin to learn how these things play together. And then if you were to do say those three bottles on the low, low end, you'd spend maybe $25, $30 and you've got your own little custom bar that you can make, you know, 20 or so drinks with. 
And then we go to the four bottle bar, which is simply adding liqueur. And in the book, we basically specify orange liqueur. Um, we like Cointreau above all others, just because it's super, super bright and clean and it's orange flavor. It's super clear, so it doesn't muddy thing, other things. And again, go, to go back to food analogies, I think it was Stephen Reichling or somebody who I learned from that when you make a rub, don't put salt in your rub, add the salt separately so you can control the level of saltiness. And something like Cointreau, if you use brandy-based orange liqueurs or things with a lot of other flavors, well, they're going to bring all those flavors along with them. So again, a clean spirit or a clean flavor that you can apply specifically and surgically, that I like that. Yeah, and Cointreau also is, is sugar-based, so that becomes a sweetener. And sugar is something that a lot of people are really afraid of because you think of cocktails and most people think, oh, it's spirit heavier, oh, it's bitter. Um, but cocktails do, a, a great number of them need that element of sugar in them. And I don't mean a spoonful of sugar, I mean some sort of element that again, brings everything into balance. You know, the ABV of the spirit, your actual percentages of alcohol, your citrus levels, which are your tartness, the sweetness of whatever sweetener you're using. So yeah, all yeah. of the things we have do that. For me, a well-made cocktail is a war of ingredients that no side wins. You want that constant interplay. You want everything to come out. You want to taste the spirit. If you lose the spirit, what's the point of drinking it? If you lose the citrus or you, you lose the sugar, it should again, it should be sweet enough so it's not too sour. It should be sour enough so it's not too sweet. Taste is exceedingly subjective. The drink I like is not the drink you like. It's not the drink any of us like because it's affected by memory. It's affected by what we've read. It's by affected by our own taste buds. The so, pretty girl you were drinking it next to. That's in my right. Case. Could have been the worst drink in the world, but boy, you remember that whatever it was, right? And one thing we really wanted to do with the book is we had to find a way to make ourselves different. You know, the 12-bottle bar concept is, sure, that's one thing, but one goal we really had in putting the book together is we wanted to put a cocktail party in book form. So there's a linear path through the book. You, you read the chapters, the one bottle bar, three bottle bar. You read about the bottles and the drinks you can make. But we wanted this sort of parallel nonlinear path, which is if you're walking through a party, the conversations you might pick up. So you know, we have people like Dale DeGroff and David Wondrich and a lot of you know, up-and-coming bartenders as well. And then people like Mike Nelson from Mystery Science Theater telling about his days working at a TGI Fridays. We want somebody to be able to flip open the book and turn to a page and go, oh, there's something interesting to read here. So it's not just a recipe book. We want people to actually read it. Yeah. Well, I am so thrilled that you all took the time to talk with us on Louisiana Eats. You have really written a very special, very unusual book that I think everybody who drinks at home should have at home. So thank you. I hope they think so. We enjoyed writing Bobby, it. Bobby, thank you for having us. From 2014, that was Leslie Jacob Solomonson and David Solomonson, authors of The Twelve Bottle Bar. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. What are you doing the day after Christmas? Drag Queen Brunch at Two Jacks is guaranteed to be the perfect antidote to any holiday blues. Learn more by calling the restaurant at 504 525 8676. 
And if you're still searching for the perfect holiday gift, visit poppytooker.com where you can order copies of all my books, including Drag Queen Brunch. Reservations and an autographed book? That's a special present. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods and wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. D'Agostino's specialty gift boxes are available now for corporate gifts and other holiday occasions. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.